We are up and operational. Today is November the 3rd, 2019, and I'll get to that in a second, but I decided that I would put this first because I got a letter that I found particularly uh, delightful, and I just couldn't wait to share it. I think I got it on the, oh, I did it early in the week on the 29th. So here's how it goes. I hope you uh, appreciate it as much as I did, or I do. Okay, here we go. I was very sorry, or dear Pastor Chronister, I was very sorry to hear about your developing atrial fibrillation, but was encouraged to hear about the excellent treatment that you received in the hospital. I hope that your health continues to improve and to stabilize. I am a neuroscientist by profession. I live on the island of Skye in the northwest highlands of Scotland. I have been listening regularly to your lectures for several years now ever since I first came across them on Sermon Audio. Our check bounced on Sermon Audio. We're trying to correct it. Yeah. Just thought I'd throw that out there. I was trying to find good sermons on the Antichrist. That just made me laugh immediately. And the first sermon I came across was yours. Well, I don't know how many are on there, but I know I overwhelmed it uh, a few years ago. At least 20 Antichrist lectures and another one today. As soon as I heard your first lecture, I was hooked. I have listened to your sermons by several, I'm sorry, I've listened to sermons by several other pastors on a variety of subjects, and although some of them were excellent, none reached the standards of yours. Your sermons also unashamedly proclaim that Jesus Christ is God, you compare scripture with scripture, and you show how Jesus is to be found in every passage of the Bible. You also include such topics as quantum mechanics, relativity, gravity, space-time, astrophysics, Mathematics, creationism versus evolution, and philosophy. Being a scientist, I loved it. <laughs> by the way, oops, I read by the way, and said it soon. I enjoy, I also enjoy your jokes. So, there is some validation, is there not? Uh, actually, I, I, uh, <laughs> that's a very good answer. You'll find out why later. Um, he's an author, and he writes children's books as well as being a neuroscientist. So I thought that I would read one of his books. I can't wait to buy them all, frankly. I just can't wait. So here is a children's book written by this gentleman. Uh, I'm, he has a pseudonym, and I guess I should mention it. I will here in a second. Book one, he has a, a list of all of his books, and as we don't have time, unfortunately. I could spend the whole day just with this, but I know that's not wise necessarily, but certainly fun. Book one, The Cat, the cat Snatchers, again, for children. Professor Douglas Sinclair, a particle physicist, is thrown into another world when his experimental dark energy facility on the island of Mole explodes. The blast generates ripples in the space-time continuum over the Scottish Highlands, which persist in the form of aftershocks several, aftershocks. several days later, Andrew McKenzie, a boy who lives on the west coast of Scotland, is walking through a pine forest when he is confronted by a wolf. Just then, a ripple in space-time passes through them, causing their minds to interact on a quantum level. It's called entanglement. They are amazed when they find out they can read each other's thoughts. 
Meanwhile, several cats have gone missing in the district. Andrew and his friends decide to investigate. They are shocked when they discover who is behind the disappearance of the cats and why. This is a thrilling fantasy adventure involving a desperate struggle between the children and a secret occult, occult organization called the Inner Circle and culminates in a mighty clash between ancient and deadly supernatural powers. So, I could, if that doesn't get you to buy these children's books for your children... I, I don't know what to say. Uh, he let me give him his due. He, his uh, his uh, pseudonym is Colin McIntyre. That would make sense. I'm not sure that I should give his real name out, other than to say uh, that it is Peter. So this is the second scientist uh, named Peter that I have had write to me. So I've had others, but these are the, the first uh, the Peters. And I was so delighted, sir. I don't know. Uh, another theme of this book, one and two, is the rise of rationality and speech in animal, animals following an explosion in the high-frequency quantum collider on the island of Mull. There's your children's book, if I have ever heard one. And I'm buying them all. These are, these are Christmas books for, for the grandchildren. I can't wait to read them to them. That's, if anything can make me read a book to a child, this is the one. And that's, sir, I just don't even know what to say. I'm thrilled that you wrote, and uh, I hope you write again. This is uh, such an exciting thing for me. I may be the only one. <coughs> okay, now we, now we get started here. Uh, November the 3rd. 2019 lecture discussion number 82 on the book of Joel. And I thought I'd begin today uh, with a few questions because I got a ho- I've gotten a whole bunch of letters and I'm almost overwhelmed, but I'm picking them off for those of you who have written me one by one in between reframing a bathroom and putting in outside windows in the middle of November or the first of November. I am amazed at uh, this gift of no snow to this point. So pretty happy about that. I'm the inside crew, of course, and Lori is outside, and so so I'm happy for her that she's carrying the windows up the ladder like she's supposed to, as is our agreement. But I had a lot of questions, a lot of letters, and uh, like I said, um, I hoped uh, that gra- eventually, eventually is a time reference and a relative turn, but I'm, I'm hoping that eventually I can get through it and I'm going to add some questions today from some of those letters, as uh, I'll make clear as we go on. Most of what I do today will seem, again, like a diversionary material. But it's going to find itself feathering into the book of Joel and Revelation at some point. Anyway, that's my diabolical plan. So, here we go. We begin today with Jesus Christ, the Ancient of Days, Daniel 7, Daniel 10, Revelation 1, where you get a true picture of him. He's the Lord God Almighty in the flesh. He's God-man. He's Jesus God. He's infinite God. He decides, and he has will, he decides to place his crucifixion, his cross, on the exact spot of the skull of Goliath, where David buried Goliath's head. 1 Samuel 17, 15 through 54, this is Gol Goliatha, 
Now, your Bible will say Golgotha, but it is the place of Goliath's skull. The place of the skull, which is Goliath's skull. And everyone who has ever listened to a cliffside ever, it's a redundant ever, but it is deserved here, knows that this is what Christ did. And he did it without the consent of anyone, especially the Roman army, the detachment that was with him. He purposed this and he accomplished it because he's omnipotent. So now we have this cascade of obvious questions. Why did God himself, the Lord God Almighty, the word made flesh, choose to do this? And everyone who has ever, ever listened to a cliffside lecture will answer in unison, Genesis 3.15, you will say, which is a fantastic answer. It's exactly right. The seed of the woman shall fatally strike the head of the seed of Satan. This is the seed of the woman striking the head of the seed of Satan, except that's not the seed of Satan. It is a portrayal of the seed of Satan. So it is in portrait Goliath was the champion of the Philistines. He was undefeatable. He was powerful. He was massive. He was intimidating. And yet he struck down and beheaded by the shepherd king. David is the shepherd king. And the shepherd king is the one who has a heart after God's heart. Uh Uh-oh. Here comes that heart word again. Probably a reason. David has a heart after God's heart. 1 Samuel 13, 14. What does that mean? And therefore we see a picture forming. Goliath portrays the seed of the serpent. King David portrays the true shepherd, the king of kings, Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman. So we have that now. And so this is a good answer, Genesis 3.15, and absolutely should be brought into the Discussion immediately, as I've just done. And while this is a good answer to the question of why Jesus placed his cross on the skull of Goliath, and let me repeat as an aside here, he's omnipotent God. Nothing, no one could stop omnipotent God from doing this particular act during his crucifixion, certainly not the Romans. The Romans were stunned by his crucifixion. The resurrection demonstrates that. He said, Father, forgive them. He's talking about the Roman detachment there. Christ had absolute control over his crucifixion. It's his crucifixion, every facet. And again, everyone who has ever come to Cliffside knows that. Even listen to any lecture I've done because I've repeated it so many times. Okay. Though Genesis 3.15, profound, incredible answer, it's not complete. Your wife has disappeared. Do you know that? Hi. Okay. Now that I know she's okay, do you always keep her groveling on the floor with the baby? Is that what you do? That's pretty sound. Yes, you do. As you have now declared to the world, including Scotland today. (laughs) Again, Genesis 15, profound. It's not complete, though. You didn't think it was, did you? It can't be. It isn't. 
There are more reasons, and you should, as you should suspect, everyone who's ever listened to a Cliffside Lectures should know by now that many questions come flying out, no matter what the subject. I submit now Valjovel as evidentiary, as an evidentiary offering. So, a letter with a stamp wants you to know. Hi, Pastor Chronister. Thanks, thanks so much. For, I'm sorry, I gotta start again. Thanks, Pastor Chronister. Thanks so much for your email answer to my question regarding Jude 9. Your response only created more questions. <laughs> yes, lots, she said. She has a smiley face though. Still no answer, but we'll keep digging. I do have something to share that I found to be curious, fascinating, and, and quite thought-provoking. Genesis 8:21. Then the Lord said in his heart, in light of your ongoing study of the heart in your Joel series, I couldn't help but be particularly struck by that phrase. Then I found it again in Genesis 6, 6. Whoa. And as far as I can tell, this was never used again. Genesis 6, 6 was a condemnation and Genesis 8, 21 was a promise. Would you consider this to be a correct interpretation? Henry Morris says that God doesn't have a physical heart. So then... Is there a spiritual heart? So many questions. Just thought I would uh, share a few of the questions I came up with. And here's her questions. Does God have a heart? Is it like ours? Was ours fashioned after his? Why did Moses write that? How how did Moses know what God said in his heart? Is it important? I think these are duck questions. Why is it important? Why didn't Moses just say he was grieved or he, I will never curse? Does ascension and descension play any part here? Physical heart or spiritual heart? Any thoughts or comments would be appreciated. It was definitely weird to hear my letter read, but since you're welcome, since you welcome us weirdos, it was also fun. I hope this letter finds you with some restoration of physical capacity and vitality. I would have you know that your mental capacity and vitality have not diminished one bit. Let me repeat that. I would have you know that your mental capacity and vitality have not diminished one minute or one bit. Sorry. Remember, I am listening to your Roman series from 2010. Thank you for that. Uh, con- thank you for that continued energy to provide us with such in-depth teaching. Val Javat. Well, don't get ahead of all the jokes. I wrote this. Now I know what you're thinking. <laughs> what are what are you thinking? And being that I am the highly trained religious professional, emphasis on highly professional might be a bit of a reach. You're thinking that this is a forged letter. That's what you're thinking. You're thinking both of them are a forged letter. But you're thinking this is a forged letter, especially since there are now two from the same supposed person in successive weeks here. How suspiciously convenient is what you're thinking. And all these many questions, who would ask that many questions? It isn't normal behavior. In addition, the supposed author announces that the religious professional, myself, is fun. She called me fun. Do I need to repeat that? (laughs) But perhaps the most telling is the section buttressing my acuity and buoyancy. 
That was fantastic. And listening to Romans from 2010, who, who does that? Clearly that's over the top in retrospect. I shouldn't have put that in there. I mean, uh, Val Joval should have left that out. That's what I meant. <laughs> to quote Bugs Bunny, me doth think thou protestest too much. Let the record show that I am confidently willing to offer the letter for a forensic handwriting analysis. I clearly did not write this letter. And I know that I will be, that this, I have exculpatory uh, evidences that will clear me of all such aspersions. But you'll ask this, won't you? You'll ask, did, did I use the church petty cash fund to pay some struggling college student to write these letters? All of them. And I did not do that, though I cannot attest or affirm or deny Lori's participation in such a criminality. A betting co-conspiratorship that it may be. (laughs) She needs the money. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, Genesis 6-6 is what Val Joval brought up. And Genesis 8-21, and it's a fantastic thing. They are obviously deeply interwoven. Genesis 6-6 is, in fact, the first mention of the mind-heart. It is the first place in the Bible where the heart-mind is brought into light. Remember that in the Hebrew, I said heart or mind-heart because mind and heart are interchangeable. When you read heart, it could as well be mind. And the context of the passage will dictate the direction. In other words, is it mind or heart or is it both, mind and heart? That is what you must do whenever you come across the word heart. And there's 830 mentions of heart in the Bible. And how interesting to me that neurocardiology, the study of the brain, asks the exact same question. Is it mind or heart or both? That is what's being asked in cardiology today, especially neural neurocardiology. Is it the mind, the brain, or the heart, or all three? In any event, Genesis 6-6 is the response to Genesis 6-5. If you read it, you will notice that Genesis, uh, Genesis has way too many sisses for me. I had to go to speech therapy for all my sisses. I didn't do that well. You're looking at somebody that flunked speech therapy, mostly because of a bad attitude. <laughs> it's true, and you know it. You knew me. <laughs> yes, yeah. And there's some people that uh, can attest to my uh, difficulties. But 6-6, Genesis, is the response to Genesis 6-5. And God, it says, and that is YHVH, very important, says the Lord. Whenever you see the Lord all capitalized, L-O-R-D, every one a capitalization, then you're looking at Y-H-V-H, the ineffable name of God. And God, Y-H-V-H, saw that the wickedness of man was great and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart, every intent of the thoughts of his heart. What is this book telling us about the heart and the mind? Again, Hebrew interchanges them. Most people will say, well, they're just lazy. 
Why didn't they have a name for the mind and a name for the heart? But they just called it all the same thing. Well, why did they do that? Did they know something? Did they do it because it was appropriate? Remember, this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Man, every, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6, 6, and God was grieved in his heart, in his heart. God has a heart. So now we compare Genesis 8, 21. Well, so I should do that. And the Lord smelled, and again, it's Y-H-V-H. The Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground. Where did he curse the ground? Genesis 3.17. So that's a 3.17 reference. I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. What's the word for man in the Hebrew? Adam. So you have to decide whether or not this is mankind or specific to Adam or what? Both. I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. The thoughts of man's heart is evil continually, and the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. How high of an opinion does God have of our heart? Now, I will say there's some mitigation in the New Testament. And we do have David, who has a heart after God's heart. What does that mean? Because he killed people. I mean, he did some awful things for which he confessed and threw himself at the mercy of God. Anyway, nevertheless, nonetheless, pick your less. The blood of Christ overcomes the curse because that is that soothing aroma. Noah comes off of the ark and he has, builds an altar, altar and he provides a soothing aroma to God. How did he know to do that? He took one of the animals that was in the ark or many, a couple of the animals at minimum. Remember, this is like Abel here. No one ate animals at this point. There was no reason to, to ever kill an animal at all. But he does it just like Abel did. So I have this connectivity between Abel and Noah. They're both providing a soothing aroma to God. An innocent animal substituted sacrifice for the sins of wicked man heart and imagination. So what we learn here is that the blood of Christ overcomes the curse of Genesis 3.17. The promise of the curse, I'm sorry, the promise is that the curse of Genesis 3.17 is ended by the blood atonement that portrays Jesus Christ. And no other curse now or ever again will be brought forth of the ground. And this obviously connects to Revelation and Joel, because that's the tribulation. There is a relationship between the flood of Noah and the tribulation of, of Revelation. They're very similar, yet not. So the differences and the similarities 
are, are important for us. It's for us to discover and investigate the differences and the similarities between Genesis 6, Genesis 8, and the tribulation. And that's what we're doing today. I'll buy it, I'll buy it, albeit in a subtle, uh, some might insist, indistinguishable way. I prefer intentional meandering. It's my. So, a few things here really fast. With apologies to Dr. Henry Morris. He's a giant. I have all of his books. I stand upon his shoulders. I attempt to stand on, on his shoulders. He was a scientific mind. He inspired me greatly. I believe his field was geology. And he approached it, he approached the Bible in a way I, I thought appropriate. So apologies to him. Jesus Christ is infinite God. Always infinite God, never ever not infinite God. And fully perfect humanity. Notice how I said that. Always infinite and fully perfect humanity. Sinless, perfect humanity. If you ever put anything in Christ that is not compatible with sinless and perfect, then you have anthropomorphized. You have put your failings into him. He is not afraid like you're afraid. He is not confused. He is not, uh, he has no, how do I put it, loss of control. As we will have off, uh, loss of control. He has perfect humanity and infinite godhood at all times. This is the God-man the blended of the blending of perfect humanity and infinite God, the God man, Jesus God, hypostatic union, all of those terms. Let me put one of those on here so that we can begin to compare again. Okay, I'll put two. God man, it's all one word. Jesus man, or Jesus God. All one word. I might not have made that obvious. I'm not going to erase it. So this answers the, the question from this person that may or may not be real. Does God then have a physical heart? Well, he's a physical person. He made that decision to do that. Why did he do it? Those are basic theological questions, but they're also extraordinary. He didn't have to be a physical man, did he? But he chose to do it. There's a kid running loose in the parking lot. I hope there's an adult somewhere near. Are we okay? We're okay. It's not one of my... Yes, someone's there and it's not one of my grandchildren. So that means everything's fine. Our liability is limited and that's our... What's that? Okay. So back to the, that answers the question. Does God then have a physical heart question? Yes, he does. Or yep, if you wish. Yep, he does. Does God have a heart like ours? Yep, sorta. <laughs> sorta yep. 
was our heart fashioned in the image of his heart? Put it this way. Is our heart, which is a mammalian heart, symbolic of his heart? A representation of a greater truth. I submit yepness. Yepness defined as yeps abounding. All of the above, sorta. See the disclaimers? Protecting myself theologically. Moses spent time with God, Deuteronomy 34.10, and there arose not a prophet since in Israel like unto Moses. That is a Deuteronomy 18.15 reference. No prophet had ever come at the time that that was written, nor any time since until Christ fulfilled Deuteronomy 18.15. There arose not a prophet since in Israel like unto Moses, whom the Lord, YHVH, there it is again, knew face to face. Moses knew God face to face. So what did we learn from that? The point is? Yay, a point. <laughs> God, God and Moses had many hours together face to face, and that means that God has a face. The face of God. What does he do with his face? He hides his face. Is he unattractive? But God knew Moses face to face. Moses knew God face to face. Start asking questions about that. No one knew God face to face but Moses. So how much time did they spend together? If you had a chance to sit down face to face with Jesus Christ, what would you ask him? How long would you talk to him? How much food would you need? How much sleep would you need? What what was this like? So how many days? How much time? What questions did he ask? How much did God tell Moses about himself and why he did things? The amount of material that Moses was able to put in Scripture is amazing. And that means there was a tremendous amount of time here, and there's a supernatural component. I recognize that Moses was likely a brilliant man, but nonetheless, he included things that that clearly no one could have done without the influence of God himself. So let's keep working this through. What is the difference between the physical heart functions and the thoughts of the heart? The thoughts of the heart would not be physical, would they? God speaks of the heart as if it has a, as if it is physical, but also as if it has thoughts and it is non-physical. Thoughts are mental properties. They are not physical properties. God chose to place himself above the buried head of Goliath. I erased my brilliant writing, artistic uh, demonstration there. This is where God chose to place himself, to give up his life here, to lay down his life. That's John 10, 17 through 18, right? He's hung on a tree, symbolically, over the skull, the buried skull, the somatic skull of Goliath. Somatic means body, soma. 
At least that kid will be able to sing someday, huh? Yeah. Our scream, yeah. Which can be called singing in some arenas, some genre. Okay, to complicate it now a little bit, what is the complete answer to why Jesus Christ, God, man, let me put it this way, how much information is in this act of his to put himself on top of that skull? Now we'll keep making it more and more complicated. At approximately the same time that Christ is on the skull of Goliath, and I shouldn't say how, I can't get the parameters of the time accurately, though the precise timing, um, I'm going to say the precise timing is indeterminable. And of course, whenever we're into indeterminacy, that makes Heisenberg euphoric and Einstein melancholic. We cannot determine whether this is simultaneous, though, as I said, I think it's within that frame. We don't know the timing, but I'm going to say that we can safely conclude that it is proximate. That's a lot of words to say something that may or may not have made any sense. But at the approximate time that Christ is on the cross, hung from a tree, over the skull of Goliath, something else happens. Judas was Satan inside of him. So I have Satan man. You've seen me do this many times. And I have Judas Satan. At the time Christ is hung on the cross, Judas, with Satan inside of him, hung himself over a field. And which Judas, by extension, through the Pharisees, purchased uh, with the Zechariah 11, 13, 30 pieces of silver. Let's put that up there. The 30 pieces of silver comes from Zechariah 11:13, And those 30 pieces of silver, so here's what Judas has done. He goes and get, wants those 30 pieces of silver, makes sure he has 30 pieces of silver. How come he does that? Because he is the Satan man. He is Judas Satan. How does he know about, oh, come on. Of course he knows about Zechariah 11:13. He has it memorized. This is Satan. Inside of Judas. And so they, if you will, throw the the pieces of silver to the temple potter because they're in the temple and he throws them to the temple potter. Let's regather these pieces a bit. The Christ, Deuteronomy 21, 23, Galatians 3, 13, made himself a the curse. Genesis 3, 17. It says so. Christ made himself a curse for us. And that's a great mystery. How was it done? What's the totality of that? And in the crucifixion process, he placed himself above this spot, a location where David buried the skull of Goliath. And now here comes Judas Satan. Satan man likewise hangs himself over a field that he purchased, Acts 1.18, 
with the silver that he threw to the temple potter, Zechariah 11, 13, Matthew 27, 5 through 8. So obviously I'm drawing these two, or I'm comb- I am set- putting these two events side by side. And the field that he did it over, that Judas Satan did, and Satan man did this, is called the field of blood money, or the potter's field. And the immediate question is, is why did Satan Judas decide to do this? What is the totality of the why, if you will? And it should be noted that eventually Christ returns to his throne. He ascends to his place, his rightful place. And Judas goes to his own place, Acts 125. Judas is the only one of whom it is said that upon his death he went to his own place, as everyone who has come to Cliffside knows. You all know this. So, so after the immediate question comes the obvious question. Christ was buried on top of the, not buried, Christ chose to uh, cruci- be crucified over the buried skull of Goliath. Judas chooses to hang himself over the field of blood money, the potter's field. Here comes the the question. Who was buried in the potter's field? Had to be somebody. If you wish it this way, who is the equivalent to Goliath for Satan and Judas? If that makes any sense, I hope it does. Who in the Bible has died and is buried in that location that Judas and Satan chose? Would Satan know? Well, of course he would know. The problems get a little better or worse depending on your frame of observation. I know how many quantum jokes am I going to throw in one lecture? As many as the guy in Scotland wants. That's my plan. So, Jeremiah bought a field, and he used pieces of silver. How many pieces of silver did he? Jeremiah 32, 9. How many pieces of silver did he use? Do you know, do you know, do you know? 17. Oh, why 17? What does 17 have to do with 30? Satan, 1 Chronicles 21.1, as I said, it's going to get more complicated and get worse or better depending on how you feel, your imagination. Satan, 1 Chronicles 21.1 and 2 Samuel 24, decides to move on David and he convinces David to number the nation of Israel, to conduct a census. And to do so, he wants him to do this. And everyone around David said, what are you thinking? Don't do this. This is not something you should do. Satan has him do it without Exodus 30, 11 through 16. Let me put that on the board. What's Exodus 30, 11, 16? That is the ransom money. You don't conduct a, a census without having the blood silver. It's necessary, it's absolute necessary to have the blood silver for the counting of Israel. Why is that? And if you don't do it, what happened to, to David for doing this is that God gave him this, these three choices. You can have a three-day plague 
How many people can die in a three-day plague? You're going to have seven years of famine. How many of Israel can die in seven years of famine? How many people would David have ultimately caused the death of? You see how he is now in an Adam position? Do you see that? And then eventually, uh, or not eventually, he's, the third thing is that you will be pursued for three months by your enemies. And David chose not to be pursued for three months by his enemies. And count the dead bodies from the plague. You see, it's, the question ultimately becomes this. I cannot have this census, this counting of Israel, the counting of people. You cannot count the people unless there is blood silver involved or silver blood involved. And there's a difference, but there's also a distinction. Who searches for the blood silver? Christ says, listen, uh, Revelation 2.23, it's in your bulletin because we are so organized here. We organized when? That's right, this morning. Or was it yesterday? Yesterday? Wow. Which one of us asked the question? Probably not me. Okay, it wasn't me. One of us is organized and she put it in your bulletin. Who searches the mind and the heart for the blood of Christ? Revelation 2.23. He's the only one that searches the mind and the heart. And what's he looking for? He's looking for his blood. He's looking for belief. How critical is the blood of Christ to salvation, duh? You can't have salvation without the blood of Christ. And therefore, obviously, when you choose to omit the silver blood or the blood silver, the atonement money, Exodus 30, 11 through 16, when you don't use the atonement money to, and you count anyway, what are you doing theologically and doctrinally? Why was David doing this? He was moved by who? Satan. How did he fall for it? Eve. I should mention that Jeremiah went to the potter's house, Jeremiah 18:4. See how many pieces you've got just to try to figure this out? And note that the potter himself, Christ is the potter. He was in his temple. That's his house. He is the potter standing in his house when he's being led to his crucifixion ultimately. Isaiah 64, 8, Romans 9, 21, Revelation 2, 27. Christ is the potter. He's in his the potter's house. And he, it, it's, it, it's either concurrent or it's just slightly prior to Judas throwing the blood silver to the potter. I've made the case that it could be easily at the same time. The debate is in Matthew 27, 3, whether then is actually and. Uh, don't ask me to explain that today. But that's where the debate is for those of you on the Internet. Anyway, Jesus is simultaneously the potter and the potter. Does that make sense? Because there's two potters. He's both of them. And while he's the potter and the potter, he's also the good shepherd, Zechariah 11 and Zechariah 13, 7. And it's his blood that is the silver blood and the blood silver. And hopefully that brought clarity. Probably not. That's okay. So, never raise your hand here. Have you decided who Satan Judas hung themselves over? Who was buried in that field? 
What's your, what's your thought? David? That's an interesting thought. David doesn't come up very often. Do you know who comes up more than David? Saul. Guess who else? Adam. Guess who else? Abel. Question becomes, who was killed and buried in that spot? Saul and Goliath are contemporaneous, right? Just when you got that, is the Judas field and the Jeremiah field the same field? Jeremiah bought a field, Judas bought a field, they both bought it with silver. One spent 17, the other spent 30. Is that inflation? It adds up to 47. What does that mean? Ask Bollinger. (laughs) Is it the same field? How about Abraham's cave? Because Abraham bought a tomb, right, for Sarah? Genesis 23.4. We got Elijah's bones. 2 Kings 13.21. They threw a guy on top of Elijah's, Elisha's bones, and what happened to him? Resurrected. How many times do they go back to those bones and throw more people on them? That's what I want to know. Why didn't they grab the bones and run? Get a wagon, travel from town to town. Brother loves, never mind. Eventually, this discussion leads us to the most pivotal of the pivotal questions, the John 13:27 question. Why did Satan combine with Judas at the time they did? What was the timing of that? The timing was after the piece of bread. What does the piece of bread have to do with all of this? Because Satan and Judas get, they, they go together. So we call it the time of the bread. What is the time of the bread and, and why? The dipping of the bread. Let me reform or rephrase this a bit. How much planning by Satan and Judas has led to this moment, to the time of the bread, the dipping of the bread, the entering? Why didn't he let Judas just go? He didn't let Judas go. Satan didn't. He enters him. Bang. Right there. Read John thirteen seven. <coughs> Excuse me. Thirteen twenty seven. Why didn't Satan just wait outside? He's obviously in the room. Why is Satan in the room? Who knew he was in the room? Two knew he was in the room. Who are those two? Christ himself and Judas. Isn't that an extraordinary place? Think, I want you to think through all of that. That's going on. That's the actual reason it's happening in, in a lot of respect. But how, again, how much planning by Satan and Judas has led to that exact moment? Matthew 26, 25, Judas answers Christ with this infamous question, right? He says, is it I? Well, of course it's you. Satan's right there. We all could see him. Okay, you and I could see him. Why does he say it is I? Did he say that for Christ? Did he say that for himself? Or did he say it for the rest of them? Obviously it was for the rest of them. How is it for the rest of them? And if you conclude that Satan is a being, and he is a being, he is a created being of unprecedented, unparalleled wisdom and intellect, Ezekiel twenty-eight twelve. 
He's patient. He's meticulous. He has meticulous operational planning. Ezekiel 28:16. That's the by the abundance of your traffic. Genesis 3. Clearly, his plan to deceive the woman was amazing. Then the application of those tactical decisions and skills, they got to be at the forefront of John 13, 27. Judas is there. Satan is there. What is their plan? Why this? They're waiting for the bread. Does Christ know they're waiting for the bread, please? Yes, he knows he's omniscient. Do they know that Christ knows that they're waiting for the bread? Yes, but they wait for the bread. Why are they doing that? Then it moves. It's not an accident. It's not happenstance. They went, oh, we got a piece of bread. Okay. I mean, that can't be true. It just isn't possible with the kind of person that Satan is. Unprecedented, unparalleled intellect of a created being. Everything Satan does is calculated. There's no, no whimsy to him. And here, here is all of the issues. I don't have time to put them on the board. John 13, 27. Matthew 26, 21 through 22. Matthew 26, 47 through 50. Matthew 27, 5 through 9. Mark 14, 18 through 19. Luke 22, 21 through 23. Acts 1, 18 through 20. Acts 1, 25. All of those put together will show you how incredibly complicated this is. What they're doing. The Satan man. The Satan man, Judas Satan, is the pinnacle of Satan's calculatory experiences, if you will. This is the point. This is Genesis 3.15. It's the eighth mystery of the eleven mysteries of God. 1 Corinthians 4.1, 2 Thessalonians 2.7-9. You see, we have the incarnation. That's the seed of the woman. That's the God-man. That is the greatest of all mysteries. 1 Timothy 3.16. There's no, no mystery to, that is equal to it, even approaching it. It is the mystery of godliness. It is at a level that it's ultimately incomprehensible. It's unseen. We're finite beings. We will never understand God. Oh, that's the rice. It's not my heart alarm. Okay. It's the trumpet. It's the rapture, not a little beeping thing. It's just a, just a slight doctrinal point, but thanks for interjecting. <laughs> yeah, she, that was actually pretty pretty fast. A piccolo trumpet. Do you even know there's a piccolo trumpet? <laughs> okay. Did you ever play one? Did you play a piccolo trumpet? Okay. Would you like to? <laughs> They're actually a great trumpet for people who can't play the trumpet. Because you can see, you can seem like you're really you're, like you're Al Hurt or Maynard Ferguson. When you're really not. So obviously I'm interested in getting one. The seed of the woman, the God-man, is the greatest mystery of all the mysteries. And we'll never, I believe, have a complete understanding of it. The finite mind will not be able to do this. It's got, it's unseen. It has unseenness to it that uh, 
is simply something that I don't believe it will ever be solved by us. We'll just ha- we'll believe it because we know it's true. With that said, it's my opinion that the mystery of the man of sin, the seed of Satan, the Satan man is the counterfeit, obviously, um, is therefore within the reach of mankind and angels. But keep in mind, it's conceived by Satan and contains elements of impenetrability and that the the complication is of an intelligence that we cannot even imagine right now. The the difference between our thought processes and Satan's thought processes are the the chasm, the gap is extraordinary. Do not underestimate Satan. Everyone seems to want to do that. Don't do it. Michael, the archangel, the leader of the angelic army, did not underestimate Satan. In fact, deferred to him. Satan has initiated, activated a stratagem that is intricately interconnected. Said all all notions that he is impulsive, that he... You set those aside. He shows no evidence of that. He is the opposite of impulsive. Don't put your failings on Christ. That is stupid. Don't put them on Satan either. That's also stupid. But it's very consistent in our culture. We want to elevate ourselves and say, Woo, we can fend off Satan. Satan came after me. And look at me. I beat him back with the... My mighty prayer life or whatever nonsense you try to sell for money. Quit it. Look at the example of Michael, the archangel. See how he does it. The Lord rebuke you, he says. Okay. Now we're going to shift just a bit. We're going to go in, we're going to, we're so far in our foray, our little journey into the physical heart. These beautiful drawings that are for sale. Uh, So far, we've hardly begun to consider the testimony of the heart. What I mean by that is the cardiac cycle has function, obviously. You're all examples of that, but it also has meaning. What I like to call the why of the cardiac cycle. And it seems beyond obvious that the human heart, again, it's a mammalian heart. It's the heart of living beings, the heart of those who have the breath of the spirit of life. I know there's reptilian hearts. I'll get into all of that stuff at some point when everyone's fast asleep. But especially, we should know that the mankind designated heart is in the image of God. And our heart system would therefore testify of its designer, of its creator. That's a word salad I put out there, but I just want you to recognize that, yes, this is a mammalian structure, but also it is a human structure, and the human is is designated, is in the image of God, and therefore looking at it as a testimony is absolutely applicable. And I've so far I've covered the the, uh, sinoatrial node and the atrial ventricular node and the... And I, and I mentioned that there's a decay, there's an inherent, not, not decay, a delay, there's an inherent delay between the two in order to allow contractual function to be um, individualized in the sense that they're not simultaneous. That, de- that delay mechanism is extremely important. Whoever put that in there was really smart. And then the bundle of hiss right here is insulated, and the fact that that's insulated, but the Purkinje fibers are not insulated is incredibly important. Whoever did that was really smart. 
the polarization, the electrical polarization and repolarization or depolarization of the myocardium, wow, that was a really good idea. And then the myocyte, the myocyte, the cellular level that also demonstrates this electrical repolarization. It goes from one state to another electrically. There's billions of those happening in you all the time. The fact that the electrical conductivity of the heart is an unseen force, it's not measurable, it has to be inferred. All of that testifies of Jesus Christ somehow. You can start asking questions. How come there's only two electrical nodes? Why not four? I'm, I, need a, I need a medical professional. Is it white Parkinson's wolf or is it wolf Parkinson's white? Huh? Oh, is that right? Oh, so I, so I can't. Is that, it's wolf Parkinson? Okay, wolf Parkinson's is, is a condition where there is a, an, a, a subordinated, but nonetheless another electrical system. In other words, it is a, uh, an anomaly. So both of those systems, um, if they are, if they are uh, in opposition, they can cause lots of problems. And so there's a surgery for that. It's an ablation surgery, much similar to what I had. So I found that fascinating that somebody would have that particular condition. I don't think they find it fascinating, but hopefully they find my condition fascinating. But all of that to say this, there are these prevention mechanisms that are pre preventing simultaneous contractile function. There's an order to a contraction that's a perfect and it's essential. And something that I know all too well, it has to be perfect. There's oxygenated blood, there's, which I'm going to say to you is life blood. Because what am I trying to do? I'm trying to get you to look at the heart as a picture, as a symbol. Obviously, he mentions the heart so many times, it clearly is something very important to him as the designer. The oxygenated blood, as I've said before, is protected from being commingled with the deoxygenated blood. So I have oxygenated from deoxygenated where did I just send you? Genesis. The right side. Now, it's the right side from my frame of observation. But it's not from God's frame of observation. Just want to point that out. But I'll continue to call it the right side and the left side because that is the traditional. But understand, that is the, is the individual's frame of reference. The right side of the heart receives... And then sends the oxygenated blood to the lungs, which, then, which restores oxygen to the blood and extrudes the carbon dioxide. That, of course, activates a vegetational activity, which I think is pretty valuable. I know lots of people nowadays don't think so. The left side receives the oxygenated blood and distributes it to the entire body. The left ventricle, therefore, has to be more powerful. You see, I drew that wonderfully. There's more muscle around the left ventricle because that is essentially the somatic element of the heart. This is the pulmonary element. So the somatic element has to get the blood through the aorta into the entire body. 
It's helpful. Because if it doesn't happen, oops, get a shovel. So I have this prevention of, uh, this, of simultaneous contractile function. Then I have this prevention of deoxygenated blood from oxygenated blood or oxygenated from deoxygenated. And then I have this wonderful design of the left ventricle being far more powerful than the right ventricle because it has further for the blood to travel. That's just logical. And the pulmonary, uh, the lungs are obviously closer. And the blood must flow in only one direction. There's not multiple directions. It has to be one direction. It's unidirectional. And the heart is equipped, it's been designed to ensure a singular flow path. How come there isn't multiple directions? Why didn't he design a heart that blood goes all... But he didn't. What's he saying here? If the blood reverses, the body dies. The valve structure of the heart maintains, again, this unidirectional channeling of the blood. The venous system or the venous system in the veins has valves in it. So the arteries do not because that's leaving the heart. That which has to come back to the right ventricle, the deoxygenated blood, goes through a series of veins that are emphasized or they are activated by the muscles. They are also activated uh, by the arteries themselves. There's pressure put on that. If the blood begins to regurgitate back down through the blood veins, through the valves, blood fails to advance to the right atrium ultimately from the extremities, then we have this backflow, and us old people call it variscosity. And people make lots of money fixing those things. I have, I have variscosity is why I wear pants. You're welcome. The man in Scotland, however, may have an alternate plan. And he's a neuroscientist and you're not. So my plan here, thinly disguised, is to cause you to begin making associations to the redemptive work of Christ with what he did in the human bodies, particularly in this case, just the heart. But I could go anywhere else. You see this exchange of oxygen in the pulmonary system. You see this exchange of blood in the cardiac system. Um, you see this unidirectional, all this prevention that's there. And I want you now to consider communion. What does he say about communion? He said, this is my blood. My blood. What's he saying? It's not your blood. It's not anybody else's blood. It's my blood. Take this and have what? Have life. He's the only source of life blood, of living blood. If you had to designate one chamber as having living blood in it or oxygenated blood, which, and the other one would be what kind of blood? Non-oxygenated blood, even though they're both red, in spite of all the blue diagrams you've seen. We must have his blood to live as he defines life. And we have to compare his offer of exchanging our death-contaminated blood with his perfect blood... His lifeblood, because that's what he's saying. You have to have my blood. You have to exchange your blood out of your body and put my lifeblood in, or your body will die, and I intend to give you an, an uncorrupted body that will never die. 
So his, he has perfect blood or life blood. Compare that to the living blood in, or the oxygenated and the deoxygenated blood in the heart function. Then he is also the breath of life, the giver of the breath of life. He's the one that gives us life. It is the breath of life that animates us. It's essential. It's, in, it's integral. The breath of life is what causes life, if you wish to think of it that way. And that breath of life, as you know, returns to him, Ecclesiastes 12:7. And then what does he do when your breath of life goes in front of him? He searches you. That's why it returns to him. Why not just leave it here? No, it has to come back to him. Why? Because he's going to search it. He's the judge of all things, and he searches the mind, the soul, and the heart. Revelation 2.23, Mark 12.29-30, Deuteronomy 6.4. Finally for now. Yay, everybody cheers. He said, finally, finally, he says, finally. We know that there is a physical heart, and we know that it is controlled by the neurological heart. The heart is two. It's dual, dual, dualistic. Dualistic has physical components and it has non-physical components, neurological components. The neurological tissues are independent. They have spontaneity. They can do what they want. The sinoatrial node and the atrial, atrial ventricular node are, are primary examples. They do what they want to do. But it's not limited to just them. The entire heart is this electrical device. It's extraordinary. The heart has logic structures. Neuro, neurocardiology asks continually this question, does your heart think? You've heard me say that. The heart and the brain are two systems. They're both neurological. But they act as one system. There's this unceasing two-directional communication causing both the neurological positions and the cardiological positions to question which one is controlling who. Is the heart controlling the brain or is the brain controlling the heart? It's ascending to the brain, descending to the heart. That is Proverbs 30, that's John 3, that's Genesis 28, 12. So start looking at your heart and your now your brain... What is he teaching you? Which is the dominant? Which is the subordinate? Can the heart and the brain communications be disentangled? The answer is ever more increasingly, as science wrestles with this, no. Now, the cardiologists, they resist neurocardiology. They want just a simple machine. It goes bump, 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 lub, dub, lub, dub. But they don't want this. But God says the thoughts of the heart. Does he know? I've asked that in the preceding weeks. You start answering that he knows, then figure out why it's this way. Why did he do it this way? Cardiologists believe that the sinoatrial node is regulated by the autonomic nervous system. In other words, the uh, spinal column. More specifically, the parasympathetic, or what they would call the vagal nerve activity and the sympathetic activity. All of this has to do with heart rate variability. Why would I know this? I'll find out. I'll sit down in the chair in a few minutes and find out about heart rate variability. This discussion, next time we gather here, is going to necessitate drawing the brain. Everyone say, we.
thank you. Yahoo is great. That was in a, whoever said Yahoo got it done in a, in a chord structure there. It was a, almost a triad. So we're going to talk about the prefrontal cortex, the insular cortex, the hippocampus, and the brainstem. And we're going to draw it. We're going to learn how the brain and the heart are connected and why they can't be disentangled. Why doesn't he want them disentangled? Because nothing is disentangled. All of creation has entanglement. Your Bible has entanglement. Whoever wrote your Bible designed your brain and your heart. Why did he do it the way he did it? What's he trying to tell us? Next week.